Amen. You guys can have a seat. Isn't it nice to sing and not smell your own breath? <laughs> I probably just confessed something there. Turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1 is, uh, is where we're going to jump in together, continue our study of the book of 1 Peter, continue to look at how Peter is challenging us, encouraging us, and teaching us that we need to be living different than the people around us. Um, I'm going to read the passage, and and what I want to do is, as I'm reading it, I just want you to take note of some of the repetition that's in the passage. Uh, Repetition isn't wasted uh, on the authors of Scripture. They're doing it on purpose, and so I want you just to to pick up the consistent theme that just keeps coming over and over and over again. I'm going to spend some time looking at it. So here we go, 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 22. Peter 1.22 says this, Since you've purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other, from a pure heart, love one another constantly, because you've been born again. Not a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. <clears throat> Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. So then you notice a little bit of a consistent theme popping up throughout that text. He says a number of times, he talks about the gospel. I mean, you see it, verse 22, since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth. Verse 23, because you have been born again. Verse 25, the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 1, therefore, that means in light of the fact that you have believed the gospel, growing up into your salvation, if you have tasted. I mean, so, so all of these things Peter is doing is he's repeating himself over and over and over and over again so that we won't miss the driving force behind what he's going to say to us. And that driving force is the gospel. Repetition should cause us to learn something, right? Maybe. I had a teacher, 12th grade English. We had to memorize a poem. So every day at the beginning of 12th grade English, she made us recite the poem together as a class for almost the entire school year. Because this wasn't an ordinary poem that you could just commit to memory and recite. This was a poem in kind of a different language, with a different cadence, with a different tone, with different inflection than any other poem you've ever heard before. Fast forward 30 years, and I still remember that stupid poem. In fact, I would like to demonstrate for you my stupid human trick right now by reciting it. This is going to change your opinion of me quickly. One that operal with the shower's sota, the draught of marsh hath pierced to the rota, and bothered every vein in sweet liqueur, of which virtue engendered is the floor. When Zephyrus ache with its sweat breath, inspired hath in every holt and heth the tundra croppers, and the younger son of hath in his rom the half of course your own, and this is my favorite line, and smaller fowlers making melody, that slipping all the nicked, with open ear, 
So pricketh him nature in here carages, then along and walk to go on the pilgrimages. Thank you. Thank you. America's Got Talent will get a call from me now. I know they say real men recite poetry, but I don't think they're talking about that. That's actually, I cannot believe I remember most of that. I mean, I just got to look at it every once again, it pops back up. But, but she drilled that in our heads because we had to take, it was our final. We had to be able to recite that at the end. And, and so she just continued to repeat it over and over and over and over again. What Peter is doing in this, this, this passage is saying, hey, this is on the final. Pay attention to the gospel. So I think sometimes we assume the gospel, don't we? As Christians, we go to church, we carry a Bible, we talk about the gospel all the time. So I know what the gospel is. I don't need to talk about the gospel. Yes, you do. Because your understanding of the gospel is going to determine the way you love other people, the way you obey Jesus, the way you read his word. Because your response to the gospel isn't just about your destination for eternity. Your response to the gospel is about the journey, too. Your response to the gospel is going to motivate and encourage and equip you for appropriate worship of the God who saved you, which is what the declaration of the gospel is about that salvation. So so let's not assume the gospel. The gospel begins with this basic problem that every single one of us has. We are stuck as slaves in our sin. Now, not sins. We do sin a lot, but it's far deeper than that. It is our default human nature. It is our rebellion from our soul against our creator. And that that rebellion against our creator, we can't escape that rebellion on our own. We we can't escape the entrapment by ourselves. A dumb illustration, but maybe help. I used to wear contact lenses. Uh, Now I got LASIK. I could do a commercial if you like. Um, But I, I used to wear contact lenses and I really like jalapeno poppers. Anybody like jalapeno poppers? I love jalapeno poppers. I like I don't like making jalapeno poppers because you got to cut them all and, and get all the seeds and the veins out of it and then you stuff it with cheese. And so you're handling the jalapenos all the time and the capsaicin, the, the oil that is on the, the pepper that actually makes the jalapeno hot, gets all over your hands. And when I used to wear contacts, that was not a good combination because I would touch my eye forgetting and be like, oh, then there's a bigger problem though. The bigger problem wasn't how much my eye was burning. The bigger problem was my hands were covered in capsaicin, so I could not help myself. I kept reaching into my eye, and it's just making it worse over and over again. I probably did irreparable damage to my eyeballs. But it's the same thing with our sin. We are enslaved by our nature in our sin, and we are helpless to do anything about it ourselves. And the more we try, the more damage that we do. You can sure be working hard, but you're going to make it worse. That, that, um, that is a weight that all of humanity carries. And so what happens is there are uh, countless man-made options that are offered out in our world as to how to deal with that sin sickness, that, that depth of sin that is in us that we uh, can't escape ourselves. The, that man-made options to help us escape the enslavement and the separation that we have from God. That's, but all of these man-made options don't work. I mean, that's, that's basically what Jesus' conversation with uh, the Pharisee Nicodemus was in John chapter 3. Right? John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness, and Jesus tells Nicodemus, listen, you have a, a significant problem, and there's only one option, and that option is you must be born again. Now, Nicodemus struggled with that a little bit when he heard that terminology. Born again? Does that mean I got to, how do I get back in my mom's womb? 
I mean, she, the first time, she wasn't real happy. The second time, she's not going to be happy at all. I mean, how does this happen? I don't understand how this works. And that picture that Nicodemus is wrestling with, Jesus says, listen, no, no, no. It's bigger than just the picture of having to be born again. The picture really is, Nicodemus, you've been doing this wrong all the time. You, you are in, in deep trouble. His entire world spun out of control in that moment when Jesus said to Nicodemus, knowing and pleasing God isn't about doing, it's about being. And that's a problem for Nicodemus. As a Pharisee, the dude memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. Okay, now we got to talk about that for a second. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You know, when you start that through the Bible in a year plan, and you're all excited in January, by the end of January, it's like starting to ebb and flow a little bit. When you get to February and you're in the book of Numbers, you're like, I'm going to read the book of John. Nicodemus memorized it because he felt like that was how he was going to gain acceptance in God's eyes by doing these things. Not only did he memorize the first five books of the Bible, but he memorized the 630 plus man-made laws that were established around God's law to ensure that nobody would accidentally go too far and offend God's holy law and end up in judgment. So he, he memorized who he was allowed to talk to when where he was allowed to go, what he was allowed to eat, how much he had to tithe, how far he could walk. I mean, he, he committed all those things to memory and began to live around all of those things. That was his entire life. And Jesus looked at him right in the face and said, buddy, that ain't going to cut it. You need a redo. So feel the weight Nicodemus is feeling in that moment. He has given his entire life to his religion. And Jesus just said, man, you're doing it wrong. But as you read through John 3, it shifts and changes to hope. Because what Jesus says is, this is the verse that you and I are all familiar with, right? God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Nicodemus, no, no, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. That the world through him would be saved. That, that weight, that tension, that blow to his soul that Nicodemus felt was met with the hope of the true gospel coming out of the words, the mouth, the heart of Jesus Christ. And that is what we declare publicly. There is good news. For those of you who are sitting here who have had nothing to do with Jesus your entire life and have had no opinion, no desire, no, de no desire at all to please God, you're okay with the separation. In this moment, the Holy Spirit has got you here for a reason right now so that you might hear you are lost and you need a Savior and His name is Jesus. For those of you who have filled your lives with all of the good deeds and all of the wonderful actions and activities and tried to busy yourself with things that you think are going to gain you acceptance in God's eyes, Jesus said, you're doing it wrong, but there's good news. And the declaration of the gospel isn't just you're doing it wrong. It brings that good news, the good news that brings joy, that good news that changes your life forever. That's what the gospel is, good news that changes your life forever. Um without going into all the details for time's sake, you go back to around 500 BC, you have this, this great conflict 
uh, and rivalry happening between the Persian Empire and the Greeks. Okay, and there, there's always at it, and Persia's always trying to go at Greece, and as, as I read history and, and understand some of it, that they, they suffered, the Persians suffered some humiliating losses at the hands of the Greeks over and over again. Their empire was huge and dominant, and the Greeks always seemed to find a way just to, just to defeat them. So you have this particular battle in 490 BC. The Persian army is making their way across the Aegean Sea, and they're about to meet the, the Greeks for a battle. They're going to punish the Greeks, and the Greeks have about 9,000 soldiers, the Persians are coming with, i got to get the numbers right because I always mess it up, 26,000 foot soldiers and then another 50,000 backups. So they're not coming just for a little skirmish. Persia's coming to wipe Greece out. They're going to wipe out the Athenians. They're going to crush them. And so Persia brings their 26,000 with 50,000 backup. They bring them. Greece comes out with their 9,000, and the Greeks pull off an amazing upset. Now, if you're a history teacher, you're sitting there cringing. I know. I skipped all of the details and got some of them a little hazy. It's okay. General concept is there. The Greeks beat the Persians at the Battle of Marathon in 490 B.C. Then there's this fella. His name is Phidippides. If you are expecting, may I suggest, Phidippides. I guarantee you nobody else in the nursery will have that name. Phidippides. It's an awesome name. Phidippides was one of the Greek soldiers, and at the conclusion of the Battle of Marathon where the Greeks defeated the Persians, Phidippides ran from Marathon to Athens, which was roughly 25 or 26 miles. Eh? He's starting to catch on. Marathon. Ah. So I'm glad they called it a marathon instead of a Phidippides. That'd be weird. But uh, so Phidippides runs his his 25, 26 miles to Athens, and tradition has it. And let's be honest, okay? Yeah, probably not true, but we'll go with tradition. Tradition has it, Phidippides runs his 25 or 26 miles, he gets to Athens, he gathers the people together, and he looks at them after running his marathon, he says, joy to you, we've won, and then he died. Now, that's how I would finish a marathon, so maybe, okay? We don't know, but what the message of Phidippides to the people of Athens was this, we have fought for you, we have won. You are no longer a slave, so live like it. That's the declaration of the gospel that Peter's talking about. You you have been slaves to sin and death, and you are desperately in need of good news. So Jesus, fully God, fully man, brings news that's going to change our lives forever. God in flesh comes to you to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Jesus comes to take what you deserve so you can have what he deserves. That's the message of the gospel. This is an offer of peace between you and God. It's an offer for peace. What will you do with that? Well, what do I need to say? There is no magic prayer. There is no mantra. There's no magic word that you can say that can go from dark to light like you flip on a switch. No, instead, the gospel response is you hear what God has said about Jesus and you believe it. You believe that what Jesus did on the cross was enough to purchase your soul and to save you. And then... You act on that belief. means if Jesus' death on the cross was enough to save me, then I am going to put all of my weight on him and on him alone. I'm not going to fall for the lie that my acceptance in God's eyes is up to me and what I do. 
Now, my acceptance has been purchased for me through the blood-bought cost of Christ's life. He laid down his life for me. So, so I know God and I are good, not because of what I've done, not because of what I'm doing, and not because of what I will do. I know God and I are good because Jesus gave me new life, that being born again, the, the new bee. The good news of the gospel that Peter is talking about is you have been saved by grace. You are slaves no more. Now live in that freedom. What does living in that freedom look like? Well, he tells us. He says, living in that freedom means you are going to love differently. He says that since you purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly. This English is such an ugly language. I don't know, if you're a grammar teacher, I'm sorry. But if you, if you know any other foreign languages, they're so picturesque. There's so much depth to the words. And English is like, eh. So here you read that. So, so you are showing sincere brotherly love. So therefore, love one another constantly. That's the same word, love. And for us, it's like, yeah, love. So I show love. I need to love. Okay, I get it. No, 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 no. In the Greek language, those are two completely different words. The first word is off of the root word phileo, phileo. And actually, the exact word there for brotherly love, if you're going to transliterate it, is said like this. It's a tough one. I don't know if you're going to be able to learn it. Philadelphia. Philadelphia. He's saying, so since you have accepted the gospel, since you have been transformed by the truth, there is an immediate change that happens in your life. You now have this Phileo, this brotherly love inside of you, that, that, that the idea of the phileo love is a love that is based on commonality. There's overlap. We share something in common, so we instantly have a, a relationship. This, this occurs all the time in our lives. If you're a parent and you travel around with your children to all of their different functions and events, and you begin to see the same parents at those events, suddenly where there was no relationship, there becomes a relationship because there is commonality. It happens in, in hobbies, gardening. So let's just say you love paninis too. Um, I will tell you, I said paninis instead of peonies. I got more comments about that than anything else we've done in the last 16 weeks. So praise the Lord. <laughs> um, I do know it's peonies, uh, depending on where you come from. In some places of the country, I've been told you can say peons. See, my panini knowledge is vast now. Um, I'm about to show how unvast it actually is, though. So, so the, the reality is if you have that same hobby in gardening, and I love paninis, and you like paninis, so how do you harvest your paninis? Or how do you make them last longer? Do you harvest a panini? I don't know. I, maybe not. But, but if you have that same common... It happens in sports. That's, that's the most common place. I try to stay away from sports analogies as much as I can for a couple of reasons, not the least of which is Tom Brady no longer plays for the Patriots, so we ignore the Patriots now. Um, but but uh, Ravens, Ravens, if you're a Ravens fan... There is a commonality, right? I mean, you've got great hope and expectation. If you're a Steelers fan, you have commonality. There's a hatred for the Ravens, right? I mean, there's all these different things that overlap. If you're a Redskins fan, you have commonality. It's called depression. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's sad. <laughs> but Peter says, listen, at the moment that the gospel takes root in your heart, there is a natural change in your heart, and suddenly there is commonality. And there's no place you see it more than when you travel. As someone who knows and loves Jesus Christ, as you travel, what, we, we have friends in town this weekend, and one of the comments that's been made a couple of times is simply that it's so cool to meet people you've never known before and realize that we are brothers and sisters. We have commonality, and there's an instant relationship there as a result. 
Another place you see it even more is when you travel cross-culturally. <laughs> we, we've taken a number of trips to China, I have, and um, without giving any specifics about where or any of that stuff, we um, uh, were invited into a house church uh, when I was there with a, a group of, of young adults. And um, first they fed us, and they fed us, and they fed us, and they fed us. I mean, we ate. It was sick. Um, and when we got done, we decided that we would do just a little bit of a worship service together. And so the Chinese pastor shared a devotional. They asked me to share a devotional. We prayed. Um, there was a lot of hand signals. <laughs> um, at the end, somebody came up with the idea to sing. So somebody, it's Amazing Grace. That tune translates across all cultures and all languages. And so as the Chinese believers sang that first verse of Amazing Grace, it was cool. It was all right. Then they asked us to sing the first verse of Amazing Grace, which was not so cool because we were not a music team, to say the least. But we, we bumped our way through it. And when that was done, the Chinese pastor said, together. And so we sang it together. The Americans singing it in English, the Chinese believers singing it in Chinese. And as we sang, this sweet little old lady was sitting in her chair, and she leaned forward, and she put her, put her hand on my arm. And I looked at in very broken English. She just looked at me in the middle of the song and said, like heaven. And it is. When the gospel takes root in your heart, there is this immediate change in commonality you have with other people. But it's more than just that. There is also a necessary change. There is a change that is commanded. Therefore, love one another. That is not phileo. Now we've transferred into agape. The idea behind agape love is, is you love one another constantly. You prefer someone over yourself. You treat the object as precious. You esteem them with high value. This is, this is 1 Corinthians 13 love. 1 Corinthians 13 love where, where Paul is talking and says, you know, if I do all these things for myself, I am nothing if I do them without love. It doesn't matter how gifted I am if I am not serving you out of love and preferring you above myself. I am nothing. It doesn't matter how generous I am and if I give my body to be burned, if I do it without love, then it's worthless. Verse 4, love is patient. This agape love is a love that is long-suffering. Love is kind. That means this love behaves itself well and cares for other people. Love does not envy. It doesn't look at the successes of other people and, 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 and regret them and be angry that somebody else is successful. Love is not boastful. It's not narcissistic and making yourself much. Love is not arrogant, thinking you are the most important person in the room. Love isn't rude. That means it behaves itself uh, within situations. It's not self-seeking. You're not trying to get what you deserve or to get your rights because I have the right for this. That's not love. Love isn't irritable. See, when you're irritable, it means you're selfish because you have a specific way you want everything to go. And if somebody gets in your way just a little bit, it irritates you. Well, that's not love. Love doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It doesn't line them all up and be like, I need to repay you for all these things. No, love is marked by forgiveness. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Now, it's not a picture of love to celebrate when your arch enemy fails. That's not love. Love celebrates only in truth. Love 
It bears all things. Love believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. That's the love that you and I are supposed to be living out as a result of the gospel taking root in our lives. And it's supposed to be constantly, earnestly, eagerly. It's your entire life is in the pursuit of this goal. It's like the Olympics. If you're going to run the 50-yard dash or the 100 meters or whatever it is now, and you're going to train all of those years for that, what, 15 seconds? But everything you do, every meal that you eat, every time you decide to go to bed early, every run that you do in the morning, every um, uh, excessive behavior you avoid as a result of just being honed in on that one 15-second stretch, and then you get to the track and you're like, great, Hussein Bolt, this ought to go well. But your entire life is locked in on that moment. That's what this constantly means. I am dedicating my life to the preference of other people. Why? Because I have experienced a love that has been undeserved. I have experienced a love that, that, that is irrational in how God loved me, a sinner. It's the least I can do is love other people. So because you've been born again, you hear the declaration that you're free from sin and you're going to begin to live like it. It means you're going to love a certain way. It means you're going to live a certain way. And I'm going to kind of fly through this one, so just kind of bear with me, please. He says in verse two, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, rid yourselves. That rid yourself means to stop, put away, cease. Knock it off is basically what Peter's saying. What am I knocking off? Knock off. I, I, by the way, I am uh, quickly learning. I have to be very careful what language I use in here because somebody's listening to me very carefully. Uh, I don't want to say any, any bad words. That would be embarrassing to begin with as a pastor. It's worse when a kid repeats it and blames it on the pastor. Anyway, so chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, rid yourselves, put them away, knock it off, cease, don't do those things. Stop what? Malice. It's a mean spirit. It's a mean spirit towards other people. Stop it. Deceit. Something about our hearts that wants others to believe something that is untrue, oftentimes because it elevates us. Hypocrisy. Acting as someone or something else. Envy. Gazing at what other people have and being resentful of their success. Slander. Speaking against somebody. Gossiping. Peter says, stop those things. Stop malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. All of those things in one way or another are an effort to put other people down while putting yourself up on a pedestal. And if you've been born again, if God has saved you, then you understand that that is a violation against the basic picture of the gospel. If I'm going to stomp on you so that I can be elevated. The basic picture of the gospel is that God is awesome and you're not. Stop trying to trick other people into thinking that you are something. God is something. So stop trying to stomp on people. Well, Frank, that's just the way it is nowadays. That's how politics is. That's how social media is. That's how interactions go. It is, you're right. As an American, that's exactly how it goes nowadays. But if you remember what Peter said at the very beginning of his book, you are not to be identified as an American. You are a stranger here. You are an exile. You are somebody who is just passing through. Your primary identification is a follower of Jesus Christ. You have a much higher calling than any American. You have a calling, as we talked about last week, to live a life that is holy. No area of your life isn't his. You're dedicated and devoted to his honor, not our 
convenience. You are commanded to love other people. And that's what it means to live as a stranger or as an exile here. When the gospel takes root in your heart, it changes how you love, it changes how you live, and then it changes what you long for. Verse 2 of chapter 2. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Desire, deeply long for, crave with intensity the pure milk of the word. Why? So that you may grow up, increase, mature in your salvation so that you may see real and genuine lasting change in you. The the living word that he talked about earlier at the end of chapter 1 is active in you and it's sharpening you. It's performing surgery on you so that there's genuine and real lifelong change happening in you. That The word that purchased you, the word that brought you new birth is the word that matures you. It's the vehicle God uses to to sanctify you, to set you apart, to to prepare you for the, the challenges of life. Do you long for it? Do you desire God's word? And, and, and Peter, Peter is not going to let you off the hook. He's not asking, so did you remember to grab your Bible on the way to church this morning? He's not asking, did you remember this week to read it once or twice? He's not asking that. He's saying, do you long for it? And the picture he gives us isn't the picture of a child who gets a cookie and is like, oh, mama, it would be delightful if I might have a cup of milk to go with my cookie. Ah, no, 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 no. He says, no, it's like a newborn infant. That newborn infant who engages in this full body, total lung, lip quivering scream that wakes up the neighborhood because I want milk now. Any of you had a baby like that? No, no I've, never, I've never seen that happen. Oh, no, the children never. Like... <laughs> Is that how you long for God's word? I mean, it really comes down to how you view God's Word. If you view it as the imperishable, never fading, never wilting, never falling, never failing, never boring Word that gives you an opportunity to get to know the mind and the heart of the Holy God, the God who is totally unlike and wonderfully different than we are. If you understand that about His Word, it'll change the way you look at it. Peter says almost sarcastically in verse 3, you will long for it, that is, if you've tasted that the Lord is good. (laughs) What do you mean if you've tasted that the Lord is good? I was blind. Now I see. I was separated from God in my sin and unable to do anything about it myself. I was destined for eternal damnation in hell because I had rejected Jesus Christ. I acted in complete and utter rebellion against God. I had been serving myself and yet still, as I cursed his name, while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. Have you tasted the Lord is good? Then it shouldn't just change your destination. It needs to change your journey. How's your journey? Why don't you pray with me? Father, please take your word 
not mine. Take your truths, not my feeble attempt at explaining your truths, and apply them deep in our hearts. Lord, I pray like the expert surgeon that the Holy Spirit is, that that he would work in our lives and cut us just right. Father, I point out to us the areas in which we're really not believing the gospel right now. And Lord, I pray that we would live differently as a result. Father, may we love well, live well. Father, may we treat your word with the respect that it deserves. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.